Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we, we're, we're actually starting a new year now, believe it or not. So um, this, is, this is the time right after uh, the receiving of the Torah, uh, Shavuos, holiday of Shavuos. And um, it's, called, it's called one of the points in the year that's called a new year. And so there's a, there's a shift in energy right now. And we should just uh, be aware of the opportunities that that, 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 that affords us. That this is now, this is now like a new, a new beginning within the year, and um, I think that's uh, personally that's that's meaningful to me because um, you know what it's going to get sunny there. It's going to get sunny there. So um, yeah, maybe that's good. Um, so that's 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 personally meaningful to me because at this point in the year, a lot of times it's sort of like. Okay, once Shavuos passes, we're right heading toward the three weeks, and now we're sort of like in this next quadrant of the year that's sort of characterized by, by Tisha B'Av and the fast of the 17th of Tammuz, which is, you know, relatively speaking, a darker time in the year. So, so the idea that after Shavuos, it's actually the beginning of a new year, and that that has the ability to sort of like wipe our slates clean and give us a fresh start, that actually gives a very sort of positive, optimistic uh, slant on what this next stretch of time can 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 mean to us. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, and um, you know, I just want to share with you just uh, one 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 little story, one little highlight uh, before we start. Uh, we, we had, I guess this is maybe I think the third year we did it, um, a program uh, that that. Uh, uh, I and uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Shlomo Seidenfeld sort of came up with one time. Uh, we call it the Torah Slam. And we've been going through on Shavuos night. We went through from 1 to 5 in the morning this year. And uh, going through the Ten Commandments, one at a time. And everyone in the community was invited to come up and give 60-second uh, thoughts or stories or insights, whatever it was, on the particular commandment. And... I counted in my head at least 40 people um, contributed. And, and then more people were there watching and then they were walking in and out. So there was like this great flow. But from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. there was never a pause. You know, and we were doing 60 seconds at a time. And many times like people went to go up, but someone else was going up. So you'd have to sit back down. So you actually, so there was this excitement and this kind of like leaning in energy the whole night. And I think it was aided by the fact that the room was a refrigerator. I mean, I actually saw, I, I it was so cold. I actually saw someone like wrapping themselves in the, you know, the, the talus is actually a daytime mitzvah. I saw someone wrapping themselves in a talus as a blanket for warmth in the middle of the night. So, I mean, it was freezing. So maybe that, it said 64 degrees. I, yeah, I saw 62 degrees. <laughs> so um, in California, that's, that's considered uh, chilly. So. Anyway, um, but one moment, just just because it kind of stayed with me, um, and uh, just just to share it, one of the, one of the uh, holy sisters in the hood um, came up and 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 told this story, and and I just want to share it with you. Uh, so she said she came up and she said, "I'm a twin," and so and she said, "You know, I just I, I started keeping Shabbos." Um, and, um, and I've had my sister over to my house and, you know, she's into it. She's not, you know, you know, officially keeping Shabbos or anything like that, but she comes over and, and, and she's in the neighborhood and, um, 
And she shared with us, said, she said the following, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll use the word I now. She said, she said, um, she told me that, um, that, that when I go to Starbucks now on Shabbos, I go, I take the back alleys because I don't want people to see me and think that it's you going into Starbucks on Shabbos. They're twins. They're twins. And I thought, wow, your sister's so holy. I mean, I was blown away. And then this thought came to me afterwards. So I then kind of went up after she went up and I said the following. You see, when it, we have a concept in Torah called a Chil Hashem, which means it's, it's, it's sort of like, it's the heaviest of all the kind of like things not to do. It's called, um, it, it's translated as desecrating God's name. And basically the idea is this, that, that, um, that people make their decisions about God based on us. In other words, we, we have the ability to give God a bad reputation, right? And in that way, we're like God's twin because they see our activities and they think really, they make this sort of emotional, logical connection that it's God doing those things, right? Or that's what God's like. So this idea that we're like God's twin is, I thought was like super heavy. And I shared this with someone and they said, oh, so even closer than husband and wife. Because we've got this, um, we've got all these paradigms about our relationship with God. You've got parent and child, right? King and servant, you know, whatever it is, husband and wife, which is like super close. But now it's like, here's a different paradigm, the idea of twins. And my, my daughter told me that twins share the same DNA. So you actually have the same DNA. And of course, we have a neshama, which is actually a piece of God within us. So, so that the parallels are not that far out. God obviously doesn't have a body. So, so the thought only goes so far. But nonetheless, the fact that we're so, such representatives of him that people actually form their opinions about him based on us, you know, that's, that's pretty far out. And, and it's beautiful in the other way also, because think about how just the fact that you can give God a, a good name, right? You know, can you imagine? Because the opposite has to be true also. The opposite also is true, that if you do something good, people go, wow, God is beautiful. God is like so great. Just based on something, God made the entire world, he made the entire universe, he sustains all of us every single moment, right? And you did something nice for someone else, and then people aren't even thinking about the trillions of galaxies, they're thinking the fact that you did this, and based on that they're saying that all of a sudden they have a good impression about God, or they love God. So, so it works in the positive as well. So just something to keep in mind. So anyway... Normally speaking, this, this whole year is, um, is, is like a little bit off with the uh, partio in terms of the way we normal cycle through the year. Like, for instance, um, Hanukkah was on Thanksgiving. Uh, Hanukkah is always like in like d- mid-December or late December. So just to tell you that everything is early. And normally speaking, this Parsha Shlach, where the spies get sent out, that's like the beginning of the three weeks, okay? That's usually always a Tammuz event, right? And that's sort of like, oh, wow, it's Parsha Shlach, yikes, you know? So that's, um, but now we're in the middle of Sivan. We're still like in the, sort of like the happy days following um, 
Shavuos, right? These are still considered holidays right now on some level, where we're at right now. So to have these parshas so early, is, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't usually happen. So based on that, I just want to say something quick, and then we're going to get more into the menorah, okay? So the idea is like this. I heard from Rabbi Wolfson, uh, Shlita, something very beautiful. And this, is, um, this thought is going on the sort of like the normal uh, or the more usual rolling out of the Parshas. We have Parshas Behelosha, which starts off with the menorah. And that's usually right before the three weeks. Okay? And then we have the sending out of the spies. And so the idea is like this. Parshas Behelosha is usually coming before the three weeks starts, which is that sad period. So Rabbi Wolfson says, you have to take the torch right? The torch of the menorah. And then, that's from Parshas Beloscha, and then use it to light up the sending out during the three weeks when the spies go out, during Parshas Shlach. In other words, you're taking the positive light of the menorah and taking it with you on your journey during this otherwise dark time to light things up. All right? So that's how it usually goes. And it's a beautiful drusha. I mean, it's very, very positive. It makes a lot of sense. But I was thinking, but wow, now that whole sort of like partnership between the menorah and the spies going out is coming during this very positive time during the year, right? Because now it's Sivan, like I say, we're still in the, the afterglow of the holidays, of a uh, uh, holiday of Shavuos. We're not saying Tachunun still in these days, so it's really like a holiday still. And, um, and so what, what would the connection be? How would it apply to now during, during this positive time of the year? Taking this torch and then going out on your journey and um, using it to light it up. And I thought to myself, you know, I think maybe what it's saying to us on one level is that now is a time where we have to actively seek out all the positive stuff that's happening. In other words, in the other construct, it's sort of like just lighting up the darkness and just trying not to be overwhelmed by the darkness. But now it's sort of like, now it's coming in a different place. It's sort of like, now we have to use that extra light during this positive time to appreciate all the wonderful things that are happening, right? And to actively be involved in that, you know? See, it's, life is a sort of a, is a strange thing. And I've heard it compared many times to um, an, an standing on an escalator that's going down. And the idea being that, um, you know, if you're standing on an escalator that's going down and you want to maintain your level, you actually have to put in some work just to stay at the right same spot. You see, a lot of people don't realize that. If, that they think that, oh, you know something, I've attained a certain level of attachment or closeness to God, a certain whatever it is, and now I've got that, so I've got it, I've attained it. It's totally not true. It's a giant mistake that people make. Um, they get a little too comfortable with their routine and everything like that. And they forget about the fact that there's sort of like a gravity to spirituality, meaning to say that, that just the nature of the world pulls you down and that to maintain just your normal level, whatever that is, that requires an assertion of effort. And then if you actually want to grow, then you've got to actually, you know, put in some, some work, right? So, so happiness is that way also, that, that you, we, we actually have to actively seek out what's, what's positive. You know, to, to sort of just sort of like wait for something nice to happen, right? And then usually 
if, if you're like me, so often promptly forget that it happened, right? That's, that's, that's how most of us go through life. And the thing is, is that if you want to stay in this very positive place, it requires an effort. And, and that's um, sometimes, uh, sometimes we become passive participants in our own happiness, in our own life. Uh, in a way that uh, doesn't fully appreciate sort of like what the, what the rules of nature are, what the, what the rules of our just uh, humanity are. So, so, uh, so let's actively seek out the good, uh, always, but especially at this time. Okay, so now I want to go um, deeper, and I want to share with you uh, an amazing Torah that I saw from the Magalia Mukos. And again, the, the Magalia Mukos is one of our greatest... Uh, greatest rabbis, one of the greatest Kabbalists. He was the chief rabbi of Krakow, when that was like the number one rabbinic post in the world. This is at the end of the 1500s, early 1600s. Of course, the Ramah, who did the Shulchan Aruch, the Ashkenazi version, uh, was the chief rabbi of Krakow as well. And um, I've never been, but I'm told that that's one of the great, uh, one of the great places to visit, you know, in the, in the world is the, is the Jewish cemetery in Krakow, that it's just a an unbelievable experience, you know. So, so anyway, um, you know, one of Reb Shlomo's uh, most famous uh, melodies is called the Krakow Nigan that he composed at the at the Ramashul in Krakow. So, anyway, Krakow in Jewish in 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 kind of uh, Judaism is is like a is a major place, and especially then, you know. So he says the following. Now, again, the beginning of Parshas Beloscha, it's talking about. Uh, lighting the menorah. And um, maybe we'll just start off with this just as a basic thought before we get to the Magalia Mukos. It says, Rashi says on it, that you have to light the menorah until the flames are basically able to stand on their own. Right? So if you think about it, it seems like a little bit redundant. Like, how else do you light something? (laughs) Do you light something so that it blows out immediately? (laughs) Like, lighting something means that you're lighting it till the flame stands on its own, right? And, of course, all the Rishonim, all the great rabbis don't use any extra words whatsoever. So, so a, a drasha is said on this. It's a beautiful drasha, but if you're going to light someone, in other words, if you're going to inspire someone and turn someone on, like, when are they fully lit? <laughs> when they can do it on their own, right? That's the idea. Like, when someone is able to sort of, like, really get it, and then be able to continue with it, like that's that's when they're that's 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 when you finished the lighting process. So that's um, just something to keep in mind. Um, okay, so let's go to the Magalia Mukos. So there's a famous medrash about Moshe and the and the menorah, which says the following: that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know what the shape of the menorah was. He didn't know what the menorah looked like. And Hashem actually had to show him the design, how to do it. And, that, and so the Medrash takes pains to tell us that this idea of what the menorah actually looked like was very challenging for Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Magalia Mukos asks a question. And if you think about it, it's a pretty understandable question. Moshe Rabbeinu got the entire written Torah. He got the entire Torah Shabbat Peh, the entire, the entire oral Torah. Like, how is it that just the shape of the menorah was so confounding for him? Like, it seems pretty basic. Like, if you got the entire Torah, you should be able to get, like, 
pretty much what a candelabra is going to look like, you know? Seven branches, I get it. All right, seven branches, I get it. You know, okay, it's got some, some, some decorations on it, but really, what's so confounding? But in fact, it was confounding for Moshe Rabbeinu. It was confounding. So why? Why? So the way I understand it is the following, and then we'll get more particular into what the Megali Amukha says. You see, you have to understand something. The menorah was not just like a lamp. The menorah was not like, hey, we're in the base of Migdash and we haven't got electricity and it's going to get dark and how are we going to see? We're going to need a lamp. All right, thank God God gave us the menorah. So we'll have like some lights in the room so we can operate. That wasn't it. Okay, the menorah was the source of light for the entire world. And it says that the windows were shaped in a really interesting way. That they were thin on the inside of the room and wide on the outside of the building. So they were like funnels that went out. Meaning to say that the job of the menorah and the Beis Hamikdash in general, but the menorah especially, was to broadcast that light to the entire world. So here you see that the menorah was not just a simple, you know, electrical fixture so that we could get around properly, but that it was shining the light and lighting up the entire world. Okay, so now think about it. That means that menor the menorah then is that sort of like um, point in materiality which is transferring the light from above down below. Okay, so... This is the mechanism which is going to be funneling heavenly light into the world. The question then becomes, how is this going to be done? So this is the question that, that Moshe Rabbeinu seems to be struggling with. How is that going to be transacted? How is God going to pull that off? What is that mechanism going to look like? So this is, this is the question. Now, the Magalia Mukos sharpens, sharpens it. And he says, he says, perhaps what Moshe Rabbeinu really wanted to know was the secret of the decorative cups on the menorah itself. And if you look at the menorah, you'll see that not where you put the oil in, but on the branches of the menorah themselves, there are these decorative cups. And it's sort of like, why? Like, what's, what's going on? Like, what is that? Okay? And if you count them, and I, I did count them, there are three on each branch, right? Because before I said over this Torah, I wanted to make sure that it's like I saw it with my own eyes. And it's sort of like, there are 22, okay? But I'm counting it, and I'm like, Okay, seven times three is 21. I'm almost positive about that, you know? And then I'm like, now I'm counting with my fingers. I'm getting to 21. And it says like, well, the Magali Amuko says there's 22. And it's like, you know, I don't care how I'm counting. If the Magali Amuko says there's 22, there's absolutely 22. And I'm counting a third time and I'm just getting to 21. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something weird, you know? And then I see that on the bottom, the initial standing branch that the seven branches come out of, there's a cup over there too. And I was like, ah, 22, okay. You know, I knew there was 22 there, but I wanted to see it with my own eyes. So that's, that's where the 22nd one is. So, so what is this idea that the menorah itself has these 22 decorative cups, if you will? That's a, 
an annoying English translation of the actual, of the actual word for it in Hebrew. Um, and so he says, these are the 22 letters of the Aleph base. These are the 22 letters of the Aleph base. Now think about it, because now it's getting much deeper. The idea is like this. What is the agency that the heavenly light is being channeled down into this world through? The 22 letters of the Aleph base. Okay, so now we know that God created the entire world with the Hebrew letters. And, and like I always want to say, because that, that just so that you appreciate it in, in the here and now, that, that each of the letters are different energy wavelengths, okay? It's not like God started with these actual letters like we see them in a book and, you know, banged them together and made things, right? It's like each of the letters is a different energy wavelength. And through these pathways in creation, God is channeling down the heavenly light down into this world. So this is, this is very interesting. And then the Magalia Mukos goes on further. He says that it says in the Sefer Yetzirah that all of reality can be broken down to three fundamental components, right? Everything falls into one of three categories. And that is um, Olam Shana Nefesh, okay? Which is time space, and soul, right? Olam is world, which would be space. Shana is time, and nefesh is soul. So everything fits into those things. And he says that the 22 letters each flow through each of those three categories, meaning to say those divine pathways, the heavenly light comes through the soul, comes through time itself, and comes through space itself. So the 22 letters are energizing each of the three independent qualities, sections that comprise all of reality. And then he goes further. He says that the, the Sefer Yetzirah breaks down the 22 letters into three units. There's a, there are three letters that go together, there's a category of seven letters, and there's a category of 12 letters. Okay, so within the 22-letter structure, there's 3, 7, and 12. And then he goes through each one of them, showing you how there's 3, 7, and 12 in each category. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them right now, but um, I'll go through uh, a couple, okay? So, like, for instance, time. Where do you see the, these 22 pathways of the Hebrew letters, right? These 22 sort of, like, energy components coming, flowing through time. So there's, again, 3, 7, and 12, right? That, that comprises the 22, says the Sefer Yetzirah. So what are the three? Pesach, Shfuas, and Sukkot, right? Those are the, that's the unit of three within time. The unit of seven within time is Shabbos. And the unit of 12 within time is Rosh Chodesh, right? The 12 months of the year. Okay, so um, maybe we'll do it with, 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 with Olam also, with space. So the, the rudiments of materiality in this world are air, fire, and water, 
Okay, now you might say, well, where is earth, right, afar, right? Because normally speaking, we talk about four there. Why is it just three? So I saw from, uh, from um, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, right, that, that, that basically earth is, a, is the culmination of air, fire, and water. In other words, when you combine air, fire, and water, then you get earth. And by the way, that is, accounts for, he says, the repetition of the letters in the Yudke Vavke. Because did you ever wonder, why are there two He's, right? So because air, fire, and water, which represent the first three letters of the Yudke Vavke, culminate in the bottom He. In other words, the bottom He is, has, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, is the He again, because you've already seen in earth the elements that you've seen previous before it. So there's a, a, a repetition of it. Okay. So, so coming back to the idea of materiality, so, um, so what is, what, where do you see these 22 pathways, the energy that's flowing through that sort of like um, crystallizes, crystallizes space itself, olam, all right? And the answer is you've got air, fire, and water, that's the three, the seven planets, and the 12 constellations. Okay, so again, and then he does it on, on, on the body as well. Now, I was thinking, and we'll hold off on that for now, but, um, but I was thinking that, you know, everybody knows that it says in the Talmud that if you save one life, it's like you save the whole world. And everybody knows that a human being is a miniature of the entire universe, right? So isn't it interesting that, that if the fundamental components that make up the entire universe are space, time, and soul, right? Then you should see that in a human being as well. And I was thinking, wow, okay, I have a soul. So there's that element. Space, I take up space. I have a body, right? And then time, I have a certain lifespan, right? So there you see that each person mirrors the entire universe in another way because each of us have these fundamental components of space, time, and soul in and of ourselves. Okay. So now, let's go maybe deeper, which is this idea that, what did we say? Just to review for a moment, we said that Moshe Rabbeinu had a question. How am I going to make the menorah? What does the menorah look like? And we said that basically his question was this. If the menorah is broadcasting light to the entire universe, how is the heavenly light going to get down and be broadcast through the entire world? What, through what agency? And so the Magalia Mukos tells us through the 22 cups on the menorah itself, which parallel the 22 letters of the olive base, those will be the avenues through which the light comes down into the world. Now, based on that, I wanted to say a thought, I'll use a fancy word here, relating to astrophysics, okay? So this popped into my head, but it's based on the Magalia Mukos. He says that, you know where else you see um, 22? That in a mezuzah, there are 22 lines of text on a mezuzah, right? So I was thinking about that. Wow, there's 22 lines of text on a mezuzah. That's pretty cool. 
And then I was thinking, wow, you know, every mezuzah has a particular name of God on it, which is Shin Dalud Yud. Sometimes you just see a Shin, but if that Shin is there, it's just abbreviating this name of God, Shin Dalud Yud, pronounced Shaddai. Some people say Shakai because they don't want to pronounce the name of God. So, so what, what's the whole thing with, 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 with that name of God? And why is it going on a mezuzah? Okay, so now you have to understand something. Remember, the Torah was giving over the secret of the origin of the universe and the Big Bang Theory thousands of years before they came up with this phrase, the Big Bang Theory. And basically the idea is, I mean, there's more to it than this, but just to cut to the parallel, God created a point of physicality, which is was the size of a mustard seed, it says, right? Like a tiny little thing. But they actually use that example. And then exploding from there came the physical universe. And it was just expanding, 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 till Hashem said, Shaddai, which means enough. And what that name did was, it's, it put parameters on the circumference, remember that word, it put parameters on the circumference of the physical universe. Okay, now you want to hear something outrageous? What is the gematria of the name Shaddai, which put an end to the parameters of the circumference of the universe? 314. Does that sound familiar? As in 3.14, which is pi? Right? I mean, as my dad would say, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) I mean, this is why, this is why, you know, like I'm I'm always throwing out gematrias and things like that, because there's, that's, mathematics is one of the languages that God speaks, and it's completely, it's not just sort of like an addition to the Torah. It is the Torah. It's, It's another level of the Torah. Right? Because God created science as well. And science is just describing God. That's all it is. But the amazing thing is, and I, I, this always blows my mind, is that God always wants to maintain free choice for us. So he created science as a way to explain what he's doing. But since it would take away everyone's free choice, if you saw that there's obviously a God who's obviously running the world, He made that agency through which he absolutely explains what he's doing an obstacle (laughs) so that people could acquire all this information while simultaneously saying, oh, it's just science, it's not God. So that's just to maintain our balance of free will in the world. In other words, he's giving away all the secrets in the name of quote-unquote science (laughs) while allowing science to be an agency through which you can deny his existence. Because he wants to maintain this balance of free choice. So, so there is no conflict, obviously. But now let's get back to this idea. So you have inside the mezuzah, you have 22 lines, right? Now that's the Hebrew letters. That's, those are the energies that God is using to create the entire world. Then you have those 22 lines encased within this, you know, this, this name Shakai. Right? Which means enough, which is putting parameters on the whole thing. Now, now I was thinking, here's, here's my thought, and uh, you know, you can take it or leave it, but it, as I was learning this, it came to me. We talk about the expanding and the contracting universe. Right? 
So I was thinking, maybe, since you have the idea of Shakai, which is putting parameters around the physical universe, and you have these 22 lines within it, which is representing, you know, which is representing all the Hebrew letters and Torah study, therefore, right? Is it possible that during times when we're, when we're studying Torah, the universe expands, and when we're not, the universe contracts? Is there possibly a correlation between those two things? You know? Because it says that when you're learning Torah, you're sustaining the entire universe. So perhaps if you're really learning it well, you're even enlarging the universe. And not learning it so well, perhaps even contracting the universe. And I thought it would be a fascinating study, I don't know if science is up to this, but to track the great periods of Torah study throughout Jewish history, right? And see if it correlates with the expansion of the universe. Right? I, like I say, I don't know if we have the instrumentation to do that, but why not check out what was going on in Spot, like when the Ari was there, and see if that correlates with the expansion of the universe, right? Or like when the Baal Shem Tov was teaching, like maybe, or at the time of the Gomorrah, right? Maybe, could be. So, anyway. So, let's keep on going. So the idea is that, again, Hashem is flowing His divine energy through the Hebrew letters, right? That's the 22 cups on the menorah. That's the agency through which the light is being transmitted to the world. So now, think about it. Each one of us is a letter in the Torah. Each one of us is a letter in the Torah. And you know, what does that mean? Well, one thing that it means is that every single person is absolutely necessary. Because you know, if the Torah is missing one letter, it's not kosher. You can't say a blessing over it. Which means that every single person, if we're missing any one of us, then we're, we're absolutely, it's like a circuit. It's like it doesn't, it doesn't work if you're missing. So every single person absolutely has to realize how essential they are. You're totally needed. Whether you have that opinion about yourself or not, it doesn't work. It literally doesn't work without you. It literally doesn't work without you. So every single person is absolutely needed, right? Not only that. You know, I was thinking one time that perhaps, you know, you, you know there's, a, there's a custom among certain um, uh, quadrants of the Jewish people, um, uh, among the men, to, to, to dress in black and white. The people who are really like Torah scholars dress in black and white. And it's black on white. Like the shirt is white, their jacket is black. So it's black on white. So what's a Hebrew, what's a, what's a, what's a letter in the Torah? It's black on white, isn't it? Right? So in other words, that dress sort of like really is like this, this incredible representation of the fact that I'm a letter in the Torah. You know? So that's, I think that's intriguing. But, but let's take it a step further. If you're a letter in the Torah, if you're a letter in the Torah, that means, and that means that the heavenly light is coming through you, right? Because what did we just say? That, that on the menorah, you had those 22 cups, which are the 22 letters, which is where the heavenly light is being broadcast from above, down below, through. 
So if you're a letter and you're literally a letter in the Torah, that means the heavenly light is also being broadcast through you. And now we can get a better appreciation of what we were saying in the very beginning. How could it be that me, like me, simple Shlemiel, right? That I'm God's twin? That people are making decisions about God based on me? But if in fact, each one of us is a porthole for divine energy coming through, then yeah, yeah, all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, yeah. You can see how that relationship on a very deep level, I don't think people are being super conscious about this, are sort of making this correlation between us and God. So when you hear this, you gotta, you gotta take yourselves extremely seriously, which means you can't take yourself too seriously <laughs> because otherwise you won't be able to take yourself seriously. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's like a fine line. Like, you know, like, you know, like a lot of times, like if you want to perform, you can't put too much pressure on yourself, right? Got to be relaxed, but you're being relaxed, not because you don't care. You're being relaxed so that you can perform at an optimal, at an optimal level, right? That's, that's the idea, right? Because on the one hand, we really are just, you know, flesh and blood. But on the other hand, we're broadcasting divine energy like 24-7, which is wild. That's wild. That's wild. And that's why it's like, I always like keep on saying, there's no such thing as a secular moment. You know? You know, it's like, I'm, I'm really into this thought because I, I really think that this is sort of like a, just like, just this, this fundamental disconnect that the world has right now which is, I, I call this bad math, okay? So here's some bad math. Thinking that God exists to the extent that I believe in him, right? God, God, and so people think that, oh, that person's very religious. For that person, it's like always, I don't know, always, it's like always like a holiday or something, I don't know. Like for me, it's like, you know, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, that's good. God exists, you know, those days in the, in the, in, in the year. But God exists all the time, no matter what. Whether we believe in him or not, God is existing. And there's a nice visualization for this. Um, someone was giving over. Actually, someone told me this. Um, and what, what I thought made, made this that much more compelling was that this was a thought said by someone who was kidnapped, okay? And it, it was told to someone who I'm close to. So he heard it from the person who was kidnapped and was being held hostage in Mexico, Okay? And uh, Lo we shouldn't know from such things, and anyone who's being kept captive should be freed. Um, so he was in this room, and, uh, and it was dark. And then the uh, light came on. I don't know, someone turned on a light, or maybe it became daylight. And all of a sudden he saw there's a table there. And he said, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about this table, but it's not like this table just was brought here. This table was always here. It's just like when the light came on, I saw what was always here. And then he thought to himself, and remember, this is a guy who's like kidnapped. He's like kidnapped right now and being held hostage. He says, God is with me right now, no matter what. Even if I wasn't aware of it, 
God is with me, just like this table was always here, certainly God is here right now and is always here. Right? So, so, so this, is, this is an important thought. But there's a sort of like a PS to this thought, which is, um, you see, you got to like God. <laughs> if I'm telling you that God is always there, and you go, that's maybe good for you because you like him. You know, like, what about me? So, so, so you have to know that God is good. You have to know with every fiber of your bones that God is good. And like I say, if you, if you want to, you know, if, if your mom is Jewish, you're Jewish no matter what. But if you want to really be a Jew, meaning if you want to believe in Torah and think and act like a, a Jew, right? You have to know with every fiber of your being that it's not just that God exists. And it's not just that God gave us the Torah. It's that God is good and loves us to pieces. You have to know that with every fiber of your being. You have to. You have to. And it doesn't mean that life isn't confusing. And it doesn't mean that life isn't often very painful. Right? And it doesn't mean that we aren't given abundant challenges from the time we're born till our last day. Right? But, but that's not a contradiction to God's absolute fundamental goodness and love for us. There's no contradiction there. And so Hashem should bless us that really we should all be menorahs, right? You know, by the way, there's seven branches to the menorah. And Rabbi Nachman says those correlate with the two eyes, the two ears, that's four, the two nostrils, that's six, and the mouth is seven, right? That, that your whole head, which is basically kind of like the heavenly aspect of your body, right? That these, that's like, those are the portals to receive the light. And then we take that light and hopefully we're actively seeking out all the good things that are happening. And then we broadcast that through our actions, through our thoughts, through our speech to the whole world. Okay. Yeah. Take the question. Should we? There's one more thought. Should we do it? Yes. Or should we yes. stop? Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Just All right. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> you want to hold off or you want to ask no, right now? Go for it. Okay. Okay. So the way the menorah was lit is there's seven branches to the menorah. Okay. So so the the uh, Torah teaches us that there was a very interesting construct because those seven. Branches stand for the seven days of the week. And that the three branches on either side of the middle branch leaned in and faced toward the middle. Okay? Like there was like this sort of like, like this sort of like spiritual magnetism, basically. I mean, because they were all flat, you know, so how were they leaning toward the middle, the flames? So there was like this magnetic, I'm using that term poetically, but there was this magnetic quality to the central pole that sucked in the light from either side. So what was that middle pole? It's Shabbos. Okay, so Shabbos is the center of everything. Now, by the way, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was in the center of the garden. Okay, so, so because Shabbos is the source of all blessing, 
Okay, well, God is the source of all blessing, but he channels all the blessing through Shabbos and then it spreads out to the other six days of the week. Okay, so, so that's a different paradigm because Shabbos goes by two names. There's Shabbos and there's Yom HaShvi, which means the seventh day, which means that we're climbing toward Shabbos. So if you're going to make Shabbos a central, if you're going to represent Shabbos on the menorah, make it the last pole. Because it's Yom HaShvi, the seventh day. And I heard Reb Shlomo say that Yom HaShvi is the highest name for Shabbos because the idea is that your whole week is leading toward Shabbos. It's culminating in the seventh day, where Shabbos is a, a different word than the six days, right? So maybe it's sort of like, well, no, it's Shabbos. Now I'm working. Now I'm not working. Now I'm working. Now I'm not working. No, 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 no. Everything is going toward the seventh day. The first six days are connected to Shabbos and culminating in Shabbos, okay? So, but again, so why is Shabbos the middle pole? So, because it's the center of our lives, it's the center of our week. You know, I'll tell you something beautiful. Um, we have a concept in Torah, it's called Cholomoid, all right? And where do you see it? You see it on Pesach and you see it on Sukkot. So I'll explain. Sukkot and Pesach, are seven-day holidays, eight-day holidays outside of Israel, where the beginning days are holidays and the end days are holidays. But the middle days, you can go to work if you need to. You can spend money. You can use electricity. You can do all the things that you normally do. So it's kind of like a regular day, but it's kind of like a holiday. So it's called Cholomoit. That's the name of those middle days. So Reb Shlomo Karlovach, right? Everybody knew that all week long he went around wishing people good Shabbos throughout the entire week, right? So someone asked him one time, they said, you know, it's not Shabbos. And he said, it's Shabbos Cholomoid. <laughs> Meaning that, that all, the, all the, by the way, there's no such thing as Shabbos Cholomoid, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but for him, like, like all the other days are Shabbos Cholomoid. It's just like, they're just days leading up to Shabbos, right? They're in between days. Like the rest of life is just in between days between Shabbos. All right, so again, this is the concept of Shabbos being the middle pole. Now, now, where do you actually see this in Halacha? You actually see this in Halacha in a, in a really intriguing way, which is that you can actually keep Shabbos till Tuesday night. Like, you're, you're allowed to do it. Um, and, and so, if you think about it, you'd have Sunday, right? Monday and Tuesday. Right? That would be the three to one side of the middle branch. But you can only keep it for three days. You know why? Because you have to prepare for Shabbos for three days. So then you have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Like those are the three days preparing for Shabbos. So in that way, Shabbos actually is, if you were to keep Shabbos the full extent till Tuesday night, and the halacha is you can make Havdalah until Tuesday night, Okay, so you actually see this. You actually see these ideas in halacha. So, so then, then Shabbos actually becomes the middle day of the week. So, so interestingly, if you look at the psalm of the day for Wednesday, right, which is the first day that would be one of the pre preparation days for Shabbos, right? You can keep it right till then, but then the preparation begins. What, how does the psalm of the day, uh, uh, what does it include for Wednesday? L'chuna ranena. Right? That's, that's, those are the opening words of Kabbalah Shabbos. 
Kabbalat Shabbat, right? We begin with, right? We're saying that on Wednesday already. Because as soon as we're officially not keeping Shabbos and preparing for Shabbos, what's the first thing we're doing? We're announcing Shabbos is coming. And you see, and you actually see it in the Psalm of the Day. Amazing thing. So now listen to this, and we'll, we'll end on this thought, but just like super heavy, right? Is that the idea that what does it mean to extend Shabbos? So I'm sure many of you have had the uh, unbelievable experience. Um, and if you haven't, I really recommend that you make this uh, a, uh, a priority in your life is to see the Amshin of a Rebbe, right? The Amshin of a Rebbe is one of the greatest tzaddikim in the world, and he's in Bayit Vagan in Israel. And he's known for keeping very, very, very long hours. Um, when I was by him, the, when, I, when, I, when, when I had the, the privilege of, of being with him, um, it was for the lighting of the menorah in his, in his house. And um, everybody knows that the, that, that the time where you light the menorah is as soon as it gets dark. So when does he light the menorah? He was lighting it at like 4 a.m., right at the end of the darkness, right before the sun comes up. And we were all waiting quietly, like in the stairwell of his building. There were like, I don't know, 20, 40 Hasidim waiting for like an hour or two hours, like in the dark, in the stairwell. And then he opens up his door and then everyone crammed in. And then it took him, do you know how long it takes to, to, to say the prayers for, for the menorah in Matsur? It's maybe, I don't know, three minutes. It took him an hour and a half. Wow. Right? And I was there. I heard, I saw it with my own eyes and heard it with my own ears. He would go like this. Baruch. 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 <laughs> he said every single word until he said each word with total and complete kavana. He didn't move on to the next word. Right? And there were grown, grown men there. And everyone was weeping, weeping during this, you know? And then I asked him for a blessing to get married, right, afterwards. And he said to me, I think I'm going to try to remember his exact words, because he speaks English also. He said, and he looks at you in the eyes like super intensely. And uh, he said, a shidduch is a gift from heaven. If you put in hishtadlis, which means proper effort, help will come from heaven. Amen. I think those were his exact words. And I'm telling you, the night that I met my wife, which was, I guess, probably about maybe two years after that, the night that I met my wife, I had the choice to go to one of two events, right? And one was just kind of like a fun event, which I, really I shouldn't have gone to anyway. Um, and the other was an event that I really, you know, a singles party, Jewish singles party that I really didn't want to go to. But I thought of the words of the umption of a Rebbe, and I said to myself, I have to show God that I'm serious. If I don't show God that I'm serious, you know, I have to put in the effort like the Rebbe said. So I was thinking of his words the night I met my wife, and it shaped my decision as well. So anyway, so they say, getting back to this idea of keeping Shabbos till Tuesday, and we'll end on this idea, they say that in each generation, there's certain tzaddikim that hold the keys to Gehenim. Gehenim means the gates of hell, basically. That's how it would be translated. 
okay, we have a concept of hell. It's not the same as the, uh, what the nations say. Basically, just I'll, I'll put it in a nutshell. The, the order is like this. You have earth, and above earth you have what we call Gehenim, right? Translated as hell, but it's a different idea. So there's earth, and above earth, not below earth, but above earth is Gehenim. And if you want to see the source of that, it's at the end of Gomorrah Tamid, where it says explicitly that Gehenim is above the Rakia. And then above that, you have Shemayim, okay? Heaven. So in other words, all souls pass through Gehenim on the way to Shemayim. And the question is only, how long do they stay in Gehenim during that purification process on the way to Shemayim? So if you get it right and you do tshuva and you're like, you know, you know, in sync, you zip through Gehenna. And other people, it's longer, right? But it's just, this is a point of passing. But now listen to this. It says in the Torah, don't make a fire on Shabbos. And so we know that God keeps the mitzvahs also, right? Whatever that means, right? So they learn out from this that the fact that it says in the Torah, don't make a fire on Shabbos, that means that Gehenim is closed on Shabbos. So that Sadiqim, the holiest ones, right, because they're so filled with love and they're so filled with compassion, the idea is if I extend Shabbos, I keep Gehenim closed longer. Right? And that's what it means that, it's a, that, that, that like the, there's the, the top, top Sadiqim hold the key to Shemayim, to, to the key to Gehenim, and they can keep it closed, basically. And so I know, I know that it's said about the Yom Shenever. I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, who am I and what do I know about these things? But, but perhaps someone like the Yom Shenever who keeps Shabbos well into Sunday, if not Monday, right? And I don't know details beyond that. Perhaps that's one of his kavanas, is that he's keeping Gehenim closed, you know? So, um, so again, Hashem should bless us to just broadcast that light and to be that heavenly energy for each other in the whole world. Amen. Yeah. Um, David, I have a question. Sorry. Isn't um, Gehenim on the way to 